the heat is, is starting to build up now and we're a good 100 yards away, at least 200 yards away from the flames and the heat is starting to build up even as I speak to you right now. It looks as if there's no hope for Summerland. I know that tomorrow morning and throughout the day people will want to see the damage at Summerland. That's understood. I would ask you to cooperate with the police and keep away as far as you can from the site of the building um, so that we do continue to do our work with a reasonable amount of peace. It's a very sad occasion. There's a lot of work to be done and I ask for the general cooperation of the public. The speed with which the fire spread was perhaps the most striking thing. One moment a small puff of smoke at the side of the enormous structure. Then fire erupting up the side of the building and across the roof. And the panic, hundreds pouring from the exits. In the hours and days after, as the human cost became known, the initial shock moved to horror. And then to astonishment, how had it happened? Something that had been designed as an extraordinarily modern achievement to give the island a facility that could be used by holiday makers when, as it ever did, the rain fell and the winds blew, was in less than two hours a charred skeleton, a, a deadly steel-framed corpse. But the painful story of the Douglas Summerland complex and its disastrous destruction isn't a story from the 1970s when it was built. Nor is it of the 60s as the numbers choosing the Isle of Man for their holidays dropped with the masses opting instead for cheap flights to the guaranteed sunshine of Spain. No, its genesis was well before then. It was a child of the reliance the Manx had built over the decades into their tourist trade. In cash terms, this industry, with its numerous spin-offs, provided a bonanza in the short months of summer, enough to keep the island and its people short on any industry outside farming and fishing and possibly mining financially afloat during the winter. It was needed to keep the Manx economy viable. Those who came found that for a few days they could quit grimy towns in the northwest and the daily slog to make ends meet and perhaps support a family, exchange that for perhaps as long as a fortnight for something almost magical. Embarking from a port on the west coast Leaning over the ship's railing and watching the sea turn from filthy brown to green, then to blue, arriving in what was, for all intents and purposes, another country. It even had its own language. There were fairies living under bridges. 
There were open hills and crystal seas. After booking in under the watchful eye of landlords glad to welcome their cash, they could gaze out of their boarding-house windows to see the beaches, the hills, the sea. They could stroll on sandy or pebbled strands, edged by those blue seas, and perhaps even go for a swim. Ride behind quaint steam trains, and on trams pulled by patient, friendly horses. Walk in the woods, and on those hills and in the glens, breathe fresh air instead of the polluted atmosphere of the mill towns and all this with many others also enjoying themselves recreating themselves in the evenings they could enjoy the entertainments provided in the form of liquid refreshment and music in the boarding houses that flanked the bay the beautiful bay in douglas And for many young people, there was the opportunity to mix with other young people, free to a degree of many of the rules of sexual behaviour they were used to in their home communities. But how did the tourism industry become a Manx staple? It wasn't by chance. It was by design and by foresight. One man was largely instrumental in seeing the potential of the island, and for putting in infrastructure to accommodate the tourists' needs. Indeed, the first of the promenades built on the beach at Douglas was given his name, which was Henry Locke, Governor of the Isle of Man. Henry Bromelock became Lieutenant Governor of the island in February 1863. His life had been eventful. In his book, Governors, Derek Winterbottom tells us that his father had been forced to sell his estates near Edinburgh, and that had thrown financial pressures onto the family, of whom Henry was the ninth child. Indeed, Henry needed surgery on a diseased hip when he was six years old, and was forced to spend two years lying on his back in bed. He became a midshipman, but he didn't enjoy the seafaring life and joined the army, serving in the Sikh wars. About a fever meant he had to leave the army, but he was a captain, and he had obviously impressed because he became assistant private secretary to Lord Elgin. It was in China with Elgin, while in a party trying to negotiate peace, he was captured, imprisoned in chains, and only a day away from execution when he escaped but he returned to England a popular hero. He was made a commander of the Bath and private secretary to Lord Grey, and it was Grey's influence that led Henry Locke to becoming governor of the Isle of Man. He arrived here and, after rejecting suggested homes, including Marina Lodge, later to become the Villa Marina, he took a lease on Bemahague on the outskirts of Douglas, which is now Government House. At that time, the governor presided over Timbald and was very much involved in politics. When, in 1879, the former Bank of Mona building was bought for the Keys moved to Douglas, the present Timbald building, his office was behind the large bow windows that looked down Prospect Hill. Locke had already used his influence in London to give the island more fiscal clout, quoting again from Winterbottom, and after the literal collapse of a breakwater scheme designed for Douglas, where the battery pier now stands, 
Locke found a solution which was, quote, bold and indeed revolutionary. Taking matters entirely into his own hands, he entered into negotiations with the Home Office and the Treasury, offering to concede the fact that all customs duties should be increased at British levels if Tinwald might be allowed to control the spending of any surplus revenue. There was a proviso. The House of Keys must become an elected body, which it wasn't at this stage. It was self-elected. So, quote, a century after revestment, Locke proposed a solution to the two main problems which had bedeviled Manx's political life. This surplus revenue gave the Manx and Locke concessions which were fully exploited in succeeding generations. It gave cash in hand to start building the infrastructure needed if tourists, many tourists, were to be accommodated. Locke had looked across the Irish Sea to the Lake District, where thousands of people were visiting to view its beauties and decided the island can get some of that business. In 1863, Locke's first year in office, 60,000 people arrived in the island. By 1887, that had risen to approaching 350,000. It was possible because, encouraged by the surge in numbers and the increase in business, of course, the steam packet increased the size of its fleet. In June 1875, the first block of Lock Parade, it was as known then, was laid. It was finished just a year later. How long would it take these days to construct Lock Promenade? The men worked at night to get the work done, apparently, and presumably on occasion, the seas were breaking over the top of the workings. On its heels came the building of the boarding houses that were such a vital aspect of Manx tourism, and the tidying up of Douglas, which was fairly ramshackled at that time. Locke also encouraged the building of the railways. This meant access for those tourists to Peel and to the southern ports. Before the short-sighted decision to axe part of the railways in the 60s, the system ran through to the west. Indeed, the station in Peel still stands. When Locke resigned after 19 years, the High Bailiff of Douglas, Samuel Harris, wrote in an illuminated address... Whilst faithfully guarding our ancient rights and privileges, Your Excellency has been the means of carrying out important reforms and improvements which have materially increased the prosperity of the island and the happiness and welfare of its people. Among these, we place in the first rank the elective franchise and the full benefit of our insular revenue, by means of which Your Excellency and the legislature were enabled to carry out important insular harbour works, including the Battery and Victoria Piers at Douglas and the harbour works at Ramsey, Port Erin and Port St Mary, whereby not only the safety and comfort have been secured to the constantly increasing number of visitors who now annually throng to these shores, amongst whom we've been proud to number princes, statesmen and many other distinguished personages who've been Your Excellency's guests at Government House, and as a later result, we now enjoy the inestimable boon of daily communication with England and a daily mail. We feel also that, to Your Excellency, we are largely indebted for our system of railways throughout the island. Apart from pressing for infrastructural improvements in Douglas, which was pretty ramshackle when he arrived, as we've heard, Governor Locke saw the advantage of giving tourists access to other areas in the island. In the years before cars and sharers, Train transport could do that service as well, of course, of carrying freight. It also, of course, added to the tourist experience, rattling and trundling through the Manx countryside in a miniature train. The railways nearly disappeared in the 60s as tourism demand fell and the politicians of the time, in their deep wisdom, started selling off the rails. 
not just selling them off, giving them away on occasion. A concerted effort by enthusiasts, including Lord Elsa, saved at least part of the system. There then was staged a revival when it was realised what the island had was really pretty special. By that time it was too late to save some parts of the line, Douglas to Peel, and the route up the west to Ramsey, but the Manx Rail system has proved an enormous draw with enthusiasts, seeing a form of transport, a narrow-gauge railway, with original rail stock and smelling the smuts, hearing the whistle, as well worth paying money to come and see. <coughs> Along with castles and other buildings and homes, the rail system in the island is a great plus for the island's tourism effort, and one which, after drawing back from the brink, is now cherished and treasured, be it in the face of health and safety demands. The braking system of the Snaefell Mountain Railway came under close scrutiny after an accident some years ago, and occasionally the trams come off the rails. But they are, well, not a godsend, they are man-made, but certainly a massive bonus to the island's visitor effort. And as I mentioned, they were encouraged by Governor Locke, and one loco is named in his honour. Mike Buttle is someone who has great knowledge of the Manx trains and their history. The railways on the Isle of Man were all about tourism, John. That plain, plain and simple, there's no other way of, of putting it. It was, it was about the, the rapid development of tourism. Were they all private enterprises? It was a private company, yes. Yeah. The Isle of Man Railway Company was, was formed in December 1870. Um, issued their shares. There was a, there was a good uptake on the, the, the purchase of shares. And uh, then they started building the first passenger line between Douglas and Peel. They started it in March 1872. So they saw the, what was coming. They saw the tourist rush coming. Absolutely. We'll jump in on Absolutely. This. There'd been various proposals over the years before 1870, but none of them had come to uh, fruition because they, to use a, a modern term, the, the, the business case wasn't there for building it. The island's population was only around about 45,000 people, and that, that couldn't support a railway. But when tourism came in, when Governor Locke brought in uh, instant tourism in the island and it took off and my word didn't it take off in a big way um, that suddenly made the case for building a railway become viable just before we go on to the railways there was an idea for canal there was what an idea that would have been that would have gone along the central valley absolutely and doesn't that make complete sense because you've got the, the two rivers running into douglas and then the neb running into peel so just to connect just a, a case of connecting the two together and uh, running your barges between the, the two ports and that would have been for industrial purposes not absolutely oh absolutely wouldn't have taken the tourists and absolutely industrial <laughs> only yeah which was the first railway line that was built the first passenger railway was the uh, one built between Douglas and Peel. And that was to take people, tourists, uh, expand the area around Douglas, because presumably they'd, most of them stayed in, in Douglas or the periphery. Douglas to Peel was important because Peel was the island's second port. So when, when the ships couldn't dock in Douglas, they'd dock in Peel. So it was an ideal way of, of getting people from one side of the island uh, to another. So that was the one they pushed forward first because it had the, the strongest case for it. And they thought it would generate uh, the most amount of uh, traffic. It was uh, a lovely ride as well for the tourists coming ashore. I mean, admittedly, they probably would have come ashore because the wind was blowing a bit. <laughs> They'd be a little seasick. But to come ashore on the island uh, and to go across the island to presume their boarding houses in Douglas, it would have been, I suppose, quite delightful. Across that central valley, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that was built. And then presumably the company looked around and thought, well, if we can do good business here, we can do good business to other places. The, their, their plan was that they would build the Douglas and uh, 
Castletown lines. The, the original idea was that the, the south line, the one that now finishes at Port Erin, was going to terminate, terminate at Castletown. Uh, so they, they built those two lines together. They were, the workmen were working on both construction sites at the same time, uh, progressing the Peel line first. But the Port Erin line wasn't too far behind. Um, well, was that from uh, pressure from Port Erin or was that because they thought it was a good idea? Port Erin, Port Erin was only a very, very small village before the railway reached it. You, you talk about places across the water like Crewe and Swindon being railway towns. Now, Port Erin for the Isle of Man is a railway town because before the steam railway reached it, there was nothing there, John. Mike Bottle and the Manx Railways as influential in opening up the Manx hinterland to tourism. Tourism was mightily helpful to the ferry company, which in the 1830s adopted the name Steam Packet, and at its pomp boasted a fleet of 16. Alex Brindley has studied its history. We all look back to the glory days of uh, tourism and uh, the people who remember, remember the, the six sisters of the 1950s, you know, sitting here. Well, um, if you go back through history, there's always been a large fleet in the, in the steam packet. And that was driven by the arrival of tourism. So but, they uh, lived off tourism, did they? I, I, I would argue, yes, they did um, originally. Because in the winter, there weren't that many people coming across. I suppose uh, they had to make, they make their money in the summer. They did make their money in the summer. In the winter, you would not have found the big fleet of vessels operating. They were laid up in places like um, Barrow in Birkenhead. You wouldn't have had the, the, the fleet of six or eight steamers operating in the winter at all. You'd have had a, a, a bare service, a bare backbone service. They, they did have freight ships. They've had the, the Peveril was traditionally the freighter until more modern times when they combined freight and passenger traffic on the Ben McCree. Um, there was a freighter known as the Conister, the Ramsey. So there was still freight traffic um, that was brought to the island. Um, but tourism was the big driver for the expansion of the steam packet. I think the peak of it, things, it was about 16 vessels or something extraordinary, the, an enormous number. There, there, there was an enormous number Where of vessels. Where did they put them all? Well, they used to berth them um, side by side on the Victoria Pier here and the King Edward Pier, um, as it was then. You, you wouldn't see that now, um, the vessels berthing side by side. Of course, it's not done with row-row ferries um, that we have nowadays. But no, they would they would be berthed um, side by side, one, two, three abreast sometimes. But if you go back to those early days, Douglas Harbour, as you know, it wasn't there. Um, underneath what is now the King Edward Pier, the one that the Ben McCree berths against, that was the Red Pier, and that was the, the entrance to the, the inner harbour. The outer harbour here wasn't here, and vessels used to have to berth in the bay, and then there were the, the infamous Douglas boatmen, and they were notorious because um, they were, shall we say, um, intimidating, and there were many stories of um, passengers who were basically held at ransom out in the middle of the bay saying, um, if you don't pay double, if you don't pay triple, we'll throw your luggage off, or that that's it. And there were numerous complaints and letters, and eventually got to the point where the Victoria Pier was extended into deep water in order to put these these notorious Douglas boatmen out of business. Well, once these people did get on on land, basically, they set off, presumably, most of them to the boarding houses. Yes, and the, back in, I don't think people can really comprehend what the, um, the, the, the tourist industry over here was like. And it was very much um, farm to fork as well. Many farmers owned some of these fleets of, uh, if you call them fleets, of uh, boarding houses that uh, went not just along the promenade, the ones that um, we, we, we see a lot are now turned into apartments, but also Upper Douglas, Woodburn Square, Hutchinson Square. All these big Victorian buildings, they were all boarding houses. And they, they did full board. You got your breakfast, you got your lunch, and you got your evening meal. And all of it was a case of the farmers would, you know, go and grow the food, they get the eggs, the bacon and everything else, and it'd be served up in their hotels by um, grand matronly-like landladies um, who you would go back to um, for either your lunch 
lunch or get your, your packed lunch to take with you. Who didn't allow any hanky-panky. Oh, um, no. Yeah, and, and eventually this sort of spread out from Douglas, poured air in, uh, basically, because of the train link. Yes. Was able to provide accommodation as well. Uh, very much so. The uh, the railways um, revolutionised uh, tourism for the uh, the other resorts on the island, Peel, Ramsey, um, very much in the similar way that um, even today on the steam railway, there are echoes of how it used to be that um, where... There, there is a there is a room that was uh, was a, a souvenir shop for a while in Douglas. That was the the porter's office um, in Port Erin. The, uh, the the tea rooms in the station there. That was the the porter's and luggage room. Because of course, what we we forget is that people would get off the boat here and their luggage. Um, these big cases would then have to be carried around, and there were porters who would carry your luggage, put it on the train for you. You'd get it off at Port Erin, and it'd be taken to your hotel for you as well. Um, and this used to happen, as I say, Port Erin, Peel, Ramsey, and other places. I mean, we had farming, we had fishing. We had a little bit of mining, but basically the island revolved around tourism in those summer months. It did, and this really was driven from the fact that um, the northwest, especially in the UK, um, there was lots of industrial towns. And um, at around about this period, um, the, the laws changed in the UK that allowed annual leave. You were, you were um, by law, had to be provided with annual leave, uh, annual leave from work. And at this point, um, people suddenly went, well, wh- where are we going to go? And coming to the Isle of Man was was exotic. You know, Exciting. You it, were going to another country, another language. You, Policemen with white helmets. Yeah, and the way you got there, the, the, if you look at the steam packet boats at the time, they were known as mini cunardas. They, they, they you know, cunard got their funnel colours from the Isle of Man steam packet. And inside, they were glorious vessels. Um, there was beautiful carved wood. Um, you ate off China. You did. You ate off China. So, actually, this was an exotic holiday um, that was in reach of the working classes. So, that's why it was so popular. And, of course, no airlines to steal them anywhere else. Although the island was still largely unknown south of Birmingham, it became a go-to holiday location in the north of England. The TT started in 1907, and that also attracted spectators. And indeed, film producers George Formby brought his ukulele and his Shuttleworth snapover for no limit, which won't have done Manx tourism any harm. I have no more accommodation. Morning, Mr. Morning, Mr. Johnson. Well, it looks as if you'll have to go to the hotel with the other TT riders. Oh. Is he a TT rider? He didn't recognise you. <laughs> this is Mr. Shuttleworth. Of course. Oh, how stupid of me. Oh, fancy. I find someone's cancelled one of their rooms. A nice, large, sunny one facing the sea. These were the golden years. People were not really bothered if it rained a bit. Deck chairs were de rigueur as they crowded onto Douglas Beach or hired a boat or ferried round to Port Sodrick. But after the Second World War, tourists began considering the alternatives, and that included going abroad. The numbers coming to the island had started to fall. So a plan was hatched. If the heavens wouldn't provide sunshine, the Manx would. It was a bold plan that would give an offering of the woods, glens, hills and beaches, but also, if the weather was iffy, something unique. A first-class indoor swim pool with all the latest ideas and facilities, and alongside it, the key to the scheme, a solarium, where artificial sunshine will give that gorgeous tan even if it is raining. Cascading waterfalls will use the cliff face as backing, and there will be terraces of entertainment even an artificial beach lapped by the waters of its own blue lagoon. One of the most advanced projects in the world, this is an expensive idea, but the Manx believe in looking ahead with the most modern, 
while maintaining that which gives that island its individual charm and character. This has been the first of three programmes looking at the manner in which tourism became so important to the island, when it was threatened with cheap flights to sunny Spain, how the island came up with an extraordinary plan to beat nature, to provide sunshine where there wasn't sunshine in the form of an enormous entertainment complex that could beat the weather. In the next programme, the story of the day in August 1973 when catastrophe visited the island, when a dream became a nightmare. I'm John Moss, Gaukarea.